Hello, and welcome to the Canine Conversations podcast, where we are positively obsessed with dog behavior. Join certified dog trainers as we discuss case studies, explore training concepts, and interview experts in the field of behavior. My name is Kayla Fratt, and I'm the owner of Journey Dog Training, which is an online dog training business. And I'm joined today by Michael Shikashio, who is the owner of Complete Canines in Connecticut and um, pretty heavily involved in the IABC. But I'm going to let him go ahead and introduce the rest of his bio. So uh, say hello, Mike. Hi, uh, thanks for having me. I'm excited to uh, talk about street dogs. Yeah. Uh, a little bit about me. I uh, yeah, I have uh, complete canines out in Mystic, Connecticut, and um, I focus on just aggression cases. So that's kind of my main uh, company right now. It's called AggressiveDog.com, which which is still pointing to my complete canines website, <laughs> but I am gonna end up uh, getting that off the ground pretty soon. So. Um, past president of IAABC, uh, so just to clarify, yeah. <laughs> I'm semi semi retired. Semi retired, okay. From, yeah, still do some stuff now and then for them, but uh, yeah, and uh, yeah, that's that's kind of what I do, and, and been traveling, ha- happy traveling around, giving seminars and workshops about aggression. And part of that is getting to see street dogs in other countries. So. Yeah, yeah, which is what That's we're here to fun. talk about today. So we're going to have Mike on again at some point to talk about aggression because he's got some pretty exciting news about a conference coming up. But um, that's just a teaser. We're not going to talk about that quite yet. We are actually here to talk about street dogs today. Um because, as you guys know, I have been living in Latin America um, on and off for the last six or eight months or so. So I've had a lot of experiences with street dogs. And... I kind of came up with this idea to ask Mike on after I saw he was down in Chile and Colombia and he'd been in Mexico um, and had posted quite a bit of really interesting stuff about his observations about street dogs. So we're just here to talk a little bit about some of those those feral street dogs that exist in Latin America and other parts of the world that we don't get to see much of in the U.S. So, um, Mike, why don't we start out with you talking to us a little bit about your experience with street dogs and kind of where you where you've been seeing them and what you've noticed and some of your top line observations. Yeah, so I I think I should preface it that I am definitely not a street dog expert. The experts are the people that live in those countries. Uh, but I think it's I have well, both you and I have the kind of unique perspective of being you know the gringo <laughs> going to uh, those countries and and kind of taking our you know our U.S. or you know our um, U.S. maybe Canadian kind of points of views as far as how we interpret their behavior versus somebody that lives there and sees them all the time and the being able to compare and contrast that you know which is a major difference between the dogs that live in the states versus the dogs the street dogs that live in those other countries so um i've been to uh, colombia twice and mexico three times chile three times spain once so um and seeing the different so kind of get an opportunity to see the, the dogs and some of the same dogs oh, really? <laughs> actually going back. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's what I've been seeing. I, and I find a lot of similarities in the different countries, but also some differences I think we can talk about too. Yeah. Yeah. And I've been, so I have been, I drove most of the way down the Pan American highway. So I started out in Mexico and then made my way through Belize, Guatemala, Nicaragua, Honduras, Costa Rica, or Honduras, Nicaragua, Costa Rica, and then ended up in Panama and just flew back from Panama City yesterday. Um, So I've also been seeing kind of the more northern Central America street dogs and uh, observing them. So what I'm intrigued that you said that you've seen some differences from country to country. What, What were some of the things that you've noticed? And of course, we're speaking in broad generalities. I'm sure it even differs from city to city as far as the unique street dog culture. 
Yeah, I, I think it depends uh, if you're in the city or if you're in kind of the more rural areas. That that makes a big difference. Uh, what I've I've kind of seen from country to country is the culture of how they treat dogs mm -hmm. and um, kind of how much uh, they they look at dogs as pets or sometimes they're just part of the, the atmosphere there <laughs> um, and part of the habitat. So. I think, for instance, like Spain, you know, obviously, and that's in, I went to um, uh, Barcelona, um, and that area is, of course, a big city. So in big cities, there's less street dogs because mm -hmm. there's, they're just so heavily populated. One of the interesting things there was that they're not necessarily street dogs, but they, it's interesting how some of the dogs that you see just with the people that are homeless there are just going to use the dogs kind of as an extra to get uh, that when they're panhandling, mm -hmm. uh, they have the dogs really well trained just to lay down and kind of look sad <laughs> right next to them. And um, that would totally it's a great work. ploy. Yeah, it's a great ploy. If you, you know, the tourists see that and they're just, just firing money in there because. Yeah, because Americans are for suckers it. for dogs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and so, so interesting dynamic there. Some street dogs there, but not a lot. Um, and uh, versus, let's say, Mexico, I did see a lot there, especially in the rural areas. And one of the fascinating things is to how the people, and I'm sure mm -hmm. you've seen the same, how the people treat the dogs and that they just, it's like pigeons in Central Park. They just ignore them. Yeah. Like they should. <laughs> uh, and they just kind of walk by. They don't have to pet every dog. People aren't running up to the dogs and, and trying to pet them. They kind of just leave them alone. They're just part of the, you know, just like something you would see a pigeon. Nobody's running up to a pigeon trying to pet a pigeon all the time. So yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, what, about, what, what about you? What do you think? Yeah, I think that's pretty... Uh, pretty on point and it's interesting um the point about how the people interact with them because i one of the things i actually loved living in latin america was the first question everyone would ask me when i had barley my border collie out about in public is muerde <laughs> which means does he bite um and i actually really appreciated that as kind of like people weren't asking can i pet him they were more asking does he need extra space from me um which maybe doesn't say something about great about how nice many of the dogs are in Latin America, if that's kind of the first question that even like little kids were asking me that. Um, and like border patrol officials, like when they're, we're driving through a border, the first thing they'd ask when they saw we had a dog is like, oh, is he mean? Does he bite? Um, but, but it was actually kind of nice from the standpoint of a dog. Um, my border collie is pretty friendly, but doesn't really like being touched by strangers. Um, and it was really nice. It was just like, oh, it would be so much easier to like work on his like issues with strangers uh, in Latin America in a lot of ways because people weren't weren't trying to interact with him at all. Um, and as far as I think the street dog culture, I think you're kind of right that it seemed like there's some pretty big differences between urban and rural. Um, I think the big thing we saw with the rural street dogs is a lot of them seem to be more free ranging, semi-owned dogs, um, maybe more of kind of livestock guardian dogs. And in some ways they were, um, when I had Barley out with me, they were the ones that I worried about more. Um, they seemed a little bit more determined to keep Barley um, off of their, their turf, whether or not their turf included the public road. <laughs> um, versus the, a lot of the city dogs were pretty, pretty, copacetic about a lot of stuff, um, with the big exception of, I think, La Paz, Mexico. Um, we had a fenced yard and we didn't take Barley anywhere except for the fenced yard, because if we took him out, um, there were just 
packs of, of street dogs kind of everywhere who are totally cool with people. If I was out without Barley, we were just fine. They totally ignored us. Um, but if I took Barley out at all, it was within minutes that we were surrounded by five or six barking, short lunging uh, street dogs. And we later found out that La Paz is actually currently the murder capital of Mexico. So I don't know if there's some political stuff going on that is also impacting the dogs. Maybe there's just more street dogs and more competition. So they're little rougher around the edges, but um, La Paz was, I think, the one place where it was like, I would not want to bring my dog back there. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Um, and one, I, I was telling you this before, but one of the interesting things I saw in uh, Chile was there's, you know, speaking of dogs that are kind of foreign to that environment, that the other dogs kind of recognize that. Uh, somebody, we were in um, this cafe there and watching, I was just watching some of the dogs in this marketplace. It was kind of like this seaside dock uh, marketplace with restaurants and things like that. But there was a lot of uh, dogs down there because they, they're opportunists and they're probably getting fed quite a bit by the tourists. Mm-hmm. But there was this one dog that I noticed, it's kind of like this German Shepherd mix. And he was, it was, he was kind of walking around like, seemingly lost not as like on a mission as you see <laughs> yeah. some of the dogs so I sort of sort of like looking around and one of the things we noticed is that he was um every time a white car pulled up or anything like a white van type style car was driving by he'd kind of rush up to it and like was looking at it and um and then as we're as we're going outside we start walking and we gave this dog a few scraps of our lunch and he started following us around of course mm-hmm um, and some of the other dogs, though, were that were there were kind of like bullying him or just kind of chasing him off or, you know, barking at him. And uh, so we kept walking and one of the market uh, place, the, the shopkeepers there was like, oh, this dog is this dog is new. This dog's not from here. And just based on behavior alone, her mm-hmm. observation of behavior, because this dog was you know the way she, she it almost seemed like lost yeah, uh, yeah and then and and how the other dogs were treating it and how this dog was following us she's like this this dog's not from here and she instantly recognized it wow. which is fascinating that you know somebody local like that would just instantly recognize just based on behavior alone and then we ran into another shopkeeper and she was on the phone we weren't talking to her but she was she was talking to somebody else about this dog and she says, so somebody came and dropped the dog off and left the dog there oh. and they were driving a white van. Oh, that makes so, sense. So, yeah, yeah. Um, and so it's, it's interesting that it's, it's like the dogs kind of have to get used to that. I guess that, that probably happens a lot there where the yeah. dogs are dropped off in an area where they know they're going to be at least well fed and kind of taken care of by the, by the locals. But, uh, but the other dogs were um, treating this dog very differently than the rest of the dogs that were there so uh yeah i think it takes they just like people need to kind of settle in and get used to the locals or let the locals welcome them in (laughs) yeah yeah i think that's really true and i think one of the biggest things that i think is going to circle into one of the things i want to talk about is kind of lifestyle differences um and one of the things that I wondered a lot while we were traveling, but I never really had the guts to try out was when some of the times that we were getting kind of, uh, you know, like bum rushed by the street dogs um, is I was just, I was really tempted to just be like, okay, what if I just unclip Barley's leash and just let him go? And he's pretty socially savvy. He's been my neutral dog when I've worked with aggressive dogs for a couple of years now. Um, I really trust him to diffuse social situations like 
would we stop getting harassed if I just let him be off leash and just communicate a little bit better? Um, but I never, it was just too hard for me to tell which dogs were going to kind of bum rush us and then stand and bark 10 feet away. <laughs> and then which ones I actually was going to have to um, spook off a little bit more um, because there were, I, 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 I don't think I've used spray shield more than twice in the U S and I had a couple times that I took barley for jogs in uh, in Costa Rica that I, you know, probably used half a can at a single jog. Um, just uh, and again, those were actually those um, those more like livestock guardian dogs. And a lot of times those the farms would have multiple dogs. Um, and it was just me kind of looking at like my little 50 pound border collie and like six yeah. Anatolian shepherdy mixes coming at us. And I was like, yeah, we're not going to mess with this. <laughs> uh, I don't, I don't want to find out whether or not they, they're going to stop at their fence line or what. Do you think it has to do with, uh, the sort of appearance because, um, you know, there's street dogs kind of have like this. They have a uh, look. Yeah. Yeah. Um, do you think it may have had something to do with they don't see that kind of dog too often down there? As Yeah, it your... could be. Uh, I hadn't thought of that too much, but he definitely, I mean, he's a long haired black border collie. He's not, mm -hmm. he's not the ideal um, coat type, if nothing else, <laughs> for living in the tropics. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. You're right. Most of them are kind of like short haired, leggy ish brown things at least in central america um yeah yeah and i i think we should define street dogs a little yeah, bit I think more we should too, too. <laughs> as far as because as you had mentioned before there was some dogs they're just they oh they belong to somebody but they just go out during the day and they don't mm -hmm. you know they, they just hang out and go and hang out with their buddies or go beg from the tourists and then they go home at night and they you know either sleep kind of in that entryway that a lot of those homes have and they just stay there like the garage space yeah and then they yeah. just go out the next day so they kind of have an owner but uh they're just out and about so sometimes it's hard to differentiate which dogs are owned and which aren't uh generally i look at like collars and yeah if they have a collar and if they if their health is pretty good you can usually tell the street dogs pretty quickly because of their health and coat but uh and so so they're not all of them are street dogs but they certainly appear to be that way sometimes yeah. Yeah. And I think one of the biggest things for me when I was kind of guessing, other than the coat, um, kind of their luster of the coat seemed to be a pretty good indicator was um, whether it seemed like they were kind of coming from somewhere or they were just kind of where they were, <laughs> um, if that makes sense. So, again, especially in the the, herb, the rural areas, it the the kind of free ranging farm dogs often it was pretty clearly they were originating from a farm like they'd been asleep on the, the front footstep of the barn and then they saw another dog and then they were coming out versus it seemed like a lot. A lot of the street dogs are more out. But again, yeah, in some of the other areas, there are those owned dogs that are just out. We had a, a really lovely Great Dane join us for a full day at the beach in Panama once. <laughs> Who just kind of like came out of nowhere and was like, yeah, I'm coming to the beach with you guys. And we're like, okay, come on, buddy. Um, he spent like six hours with us. And then yeah. when we walked back, he went back to the house that he'd originally come from. He had a great day. Um, I'm really happy for him. Uh, yeah, and I think one of the things, do you think, and I don't know how to tell this beyond doing a really pretty long-term longitudinal thing, um, how many of these dogs are more of those kind of dropped-off dogs that, you know, have assimilated and they've been out for a while versus, um, you know, genetically street dogs, like their their great-grandma was also a street dog? 
Yeah, that's a that's a really good question. Um, I would answer that with I have no idea. Yeah. <laughs> I would say, you know, it's it's just it's so difficult to tell which ones are you know, uh, literally just no owners and just you know, some are some I think if you get to stay there for a while and observe. So uh, Moira and I were down in um, Frutillard, which is right by this beautiful uh, lake down there in southern Chile, and. Uh, there's this one dog and we were there for a few days. So we got to see the same dog over and over and every single day I'd go out, you know, we'd go out to dinner local and then I'd always take some of my meal because I knew he'd be out there and we'd go see him. And he was definitely like just part of that. Like nobody owned him. We asked the waitress too, like, who is that dog? Oh, nobody knows. She's like, oh, he's just out there all the time. And he was kind of like, that was his thing. And he was one of the happiest dogs. He was so sweet and uh, would come up to us and just roll over and, Uh you know, get the belly rub going. And and he was like the sweetest dog, totally social and totally... uh, social with other dogs too. So there's this uh, German short-haired pointer that we also saw kind of running around, but that dog had like a, one of those tag GPS collars on oh, it. Oh, okay. So somebody owned this yeah, dog. Yeah, someone, someone cared enough to put an expensive uh, collar on him. <laughs> yeah, and so we saw that dog running around sometimes too, and then we saw that dog interacting with that street dog, and they were the, the interaction was beautiful. It was just, you know, quick, like just saying hello and, and, you know, sniffing each other and going mm-hmm. kind of circling and then just would break off. Not, no real overt play or anything like that, but just like, hello, you're here. I'm here. Okay. See you later. <laughs> and yeah. That was it. I think the only play that I really felt like I was seeing in street dogs was I, I spent one, one day I was on a jog with Barley and got distracted by, um, there was a bitch that seemed to be in heat. Um, and there was, three or four male dogs kind of following her around. And there was some kind of like play going on in between her and a couple of them. Um, but it might've also been tension diffusing. It was really, I stopped my run for like 20 minutes to just sit on the other end of the park and just watch these dogs. Cause she'd kind of turn and play bow, but she also was like swinging her rump away from them. Um, it was, yeah, you know, you it, don't, it was really fascinating. <laughs> yeah, you don't see play much between the dogs. That that's for sure. Uh, sometimes with the puppies, I've seen like the puppies engaging in yeah. play, but uh, um, the 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 adult dogs, I rarely saw any kind of play, which is interesting. Yeah, yeah. No, it's really interesting thinking about, you know, what how many of them may or may not be kind of the more genetic street dogs. And I feel like there were times where I would see kind of youngish puppies or um, kind of teenage dogs that, um, you know, like eight months old or something, which I guess is still a puppy um, that seemed like they were born on the street. And what I saw from those guys was they seemed much more skittish of people Um they were the ones that seemed kind of skinny and they were, you know, rummaging in the trash. And if I rounded a corner, they were often kind of out of there. But I don't know if they grew up to be kind of confident, normal street dogs later on, or if they melted away into like this invisible, truly feral population. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, you have to kind of wonder how much, you know, obviously environment's going to play a role, but also the culture of how people treat the dogs. So like in that little seaside town in Chile, you know, most uh, everybody there either ignores the dogs or treats the dogs really well. And there's, of course, lots of tourists. So that one dog, uh, his social exposure to humans was probably pretty wonderful most mm-hmm. of the time. And he 
learned to be probably very social, including a few other dogs that we saw there. So I didn't see any any dogs there actually that were that displayed any kind of fearful body language or uh, sort of avoidance behaviors or anything like that. Most of them are just like, "Hey, how are you? What do you got? Oh, you got nothing. All right, next okay. person." Yeah. <laughs> and uh, so it's a, I think environment and, and the culture of that particular area the dog is raised in probably plays a role. Probably also the the amount of resources available, right? Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. Now that, cause now that I am thinking back to it a little bit more, I think most of the really skittish dogs that I saw were either in Mexico or in kind of like the, they call the Northern triangle, like, um, you know, the Guatemala Honduras area, which just was a lot more impoverished. Um, and those dogs didn't seem to be quite as well off. And I, one of the biggest things that I noticed that was really interesting and also useful once I finally figured it out um, was if Barley and I were getting bum rushed on our on our walks. And when I say bum rushed, I mean kind of the dogs that are, they're coming up and they're barking, their hackles are up, their tails up. Um, and they look like they might come all the way up to us. Um, and then often they would stop, you know, 10 feet short or something is if I even bent down as if I was going to pick something up off the ground, they would hightail out of there. So I think yes, they were relatively yeah. used to having rocks and sticks thrown at them to keep them away. Yeah, yeah. Um, which ended up being really useful for me because I don't like spray shielding dogs, um, nor do I like having to buy spray shield all the time. Um, so I was grateful that I could kind of use that to my advantage to keep Barley um, comfortable because one of the biggest things I was concerned about was, you know, his relationships with those street dogs were so hit and miss. Sometimes they were so wonderful and so socially savvy. And then sometimes they were so terrible. And I was really worried that I was going to start getting a dog with some, some barky lungy problems of his own. Um, so I started getting, and then I started yes, getting kind yeah. of barky, the human equivalent <laughs> of barky lungy with all these street dogs being like, yeah, no, 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 you yeah. stay away from my dog. Cause I don't want him to start having issues. Um, <laughs> but in those countries yeah. where um, where the street dogs were the most problematic was also where I noticed that if I, I even faked as if I was going to pick up a rock, um, they would get out of there. Yeah, Which was, I think I think the number one resource down there is territory for a lot of those dogs. That's why you see that, you know, they stop kind of once you leave that area. Yeah. Um, they bark, lunge, but they don't go much further because you know, yeah. that's a very expensive behavior. Exactly. It's costly. Biting, so. Um, so they, they stop and, and then they're like, all right, that worked. And then they keep, keep on going with their day. So I don't, I didn't see, that's the one thing I didn't see in any of the countries was uh, any overt aggression. So you see some barking, yeah. some lunging, but nothing, um, where I saw any dogs biting each other or, um, kind of escalating or doing anything more intense than necessary to sort of, uh, remove the threat in other, in other yeah, ways. So, I would agree. Um, and even outside of my experience with Barley, I don't think I saw much more than maybe like a hard stare, um, maybe some lip curls. But if I didn't have Barley with me, and I was watching the dogs interacting with each other. It was it was much more subtle conversation going on of like, hey, this is my trash pile or this is my tourist, um, kind of that hard stare, maybe the tail's going up, maybe a lip curl, and then the other dog would, you know, kind of turn and walk away. And that was usually what all yeah. it took. Yeah. Here's an interesting thing. Sometimes though, I saw that the only time I saw dogs barking or having kind of like this quote unquote reactive behavior was 
when they were owned by somebody. <laughs> so and we'd go there, there's like 10, 11 street dogs, and then all of a sudden I'd hear some barking, and it's the person that's walking their dog on a leash. And the yeah. dog's barking at the street dogs <laughs> yeah. on the yeah. beach and things like that. It, it kind of puts things, again, going back to the U.S. And, and kind of seeing the issues that we have here, and kind of puts things in perspective as far as... Um, how many restrictions we put on dogs here and how much that affects behavior. Now, it's like, obviously we can't just let all of the dogs in the U.S. start roaming around free right. <laughs> to try to solve this problem. But imagine if it was like that, where the dogs are just social, they go out and they uh, could go out safely and just be on the streets for the day and come yeah. back at home. Kind of like it was back, you know, 50 years ago. Right. A lot of the dogs were like that. I re- not even 50 years ago. I remember when I was a paper boy, I used to be able to just, I used to have dogs follow me around because uh, I'd bring cookies with me because some of the dogs would try to bite me. <laughs> um, but some of them would follow me around my whole paper route and they would just, you know, which was like five, six miles all all over the place. And then they would go home. They would just go home at the end of the, yeah. you know, and I never worried about them getting lost. They would just go back home and then I'd pick them up the next day and they'd follow me around. And <laughs> so uh, very social dogs too. You know? Yeah. Yeah. No, I think there's a lot to be said for uh, how important freedom is. Um, and I know this is something that it seems like, I don't know if I've been paying more attention lately or if this has been something that's actually increased in kind of the discussion world. And maybe you can speak to that. But it does seem like more and more in the last even like three years or two years, people have been talking about giving their dogs more and more freedom and choice and control. Those are all like the hot buzzwords right now in kind of progressive dog training. And um, I think it is kind of coming back to what we're talking about with these street dogs and trying to figure out how to give our dogs more of that and recognizing that all of that is kind of intrinsically reinforcing for many animals. Yes, absolutely. Um, it's, I think it's the more restrictions you put on an animal, the less enriched they are, the less they're going to be able to, uh, function normally. I think if you look at the extreme amount of restrictions in some cases, uh, with, with things like some of the extreme sheltering or, um, owners, you know, creating their dogs, uh, for for many hours a day, and not you know, or especially in, in the work you and I do with with owners, is that it becomes reinforcing for the owners to do that because it's embarrassing to take their dog out a lot of times yeah. to go out, and the dog's barking and lunging. At it. So what they do is just it's easier to manage, and that dog's quality of life and welfare really suffer because they're now. Um, now, now think even further, like somebody goes, you see this all the time, right? You, somebody goes to their honeymoon in Puerto Rico or, you know, Mexico, and then they fall in love with one of the dogs there. Right. right? And it's, this dog's got this wonderful life and they just feel bad because maybe the dog's coat is a little dull or the dog looks a little dingy, but the dog's uh, behavior is like stellar and social. But then they bring the dog here to the States and then they end up creating it for many hours a day while they're off at work and they're busy with their lives. And the, the, the dog's choice goes from completely free uh, f- to do whatever it wants to such a limited range of choices once it comes and lives in their their condo in New York City or right. something. You yeah. know? It's just, so yeah, the, the behavior um, when you take away all those choices can really suffer, I think. Yeah. And create a lot of problems. I too. think that's something that we forget to think about in some circles when we're thinking about, you know, rescuing these street dogs. And I know in Denver, um, where I, I lived for the last couple of years and um, I worked in a, a dumb friends league there, which is a big shelter. Um, Denver has, and Colorado in general, does not have a lot of sh- stray and shelter dogs. So 
many of the Colorado kind of homegrown shelter dogs that you're getting um, have issues. Um, and that's why they're in the shelter. Um, so DFL, the shelter that I worked for, did a lot of bringing in other dogs. And we would get some kind of semi-feral dogs from the States. And we would also get some occasionally from other places. We brought in a bunch after the hurricane in Puerto Rico. And um, I was on the behavior team there. So my job was working with the dogs with with behavior problems. And um, especially those dogs from Puerto Rico, they were... It was really interesting that I'm comparing like these semi-street dogs from Oklahoma or whatever with these more kind of true street dogs, I would say, from um, Puerto Rico. And I don't know where they found these dogs, but um, I don't know their backstories because they're coming in from a hurricane. None of them have any records. Yeah. But the the level of um, behavior problems that we were seeing in them and just some of the, the differences in kind of fear and what the owners were dealing with for months and months and months of really, really difficult behavior was really hard to swallow as a shelter worker and just really wondering whether or not we'd I mean, in the case of a hurricane, I don't, I, I don't know what else we should have done. Um, I don't think we necessarily should have left them <laughs> there in post-hurricane land. But um, when you've got the choice, I, I, I would wonder if, in a lot of cases, it's better to leave them there to have their choices. And even little things that we would run into in the shelter, like every single dog from Puerto Rico had serious phobias of shiny floors. Because they'd never been on a shiny floor before. And shelters have shiny floors because that's what's e- easy to disinfect. Um, oh, that's interesting. And we would have these dogs, yeah. you know, they, yeah. they would alligator roll on leash. Yeah. So they're flipping um, on yeah. the leash because they'd never been on a leash before. And then they're terrified of the floor. <laughs> and, like, they once had fine social behavior with people and dogs. But because of just the environmental change alone, they were really, really disintegrating behaviorally. Yes. Yeah. It's, you have to also think about how much it's trauma that's playing a role in behavior because it might not necessarily be, um, just a change of environment might not just be the genetics. It could be some traumatic incident that has a true impact on their behavior. So I would imagine going through uh, a hurricane and then being put in a crate on a plane to come to a new state is pretty traumatic for any, anyone, (laughs) but a, a street dog in particular. Yeah, and I kind of asked that question earlier um, that is the unanswerable question about whether these dogs are genetic street dogs or more potentially owned dogs, because I think that's something that could potentially come into play again when we're looking at whether or not we should rescue some of these dogs is, you know, potentially the dog that you were talking about earlier at the cafe that loved the belly rubs. Potentially that dog could, it doesn't seem like he wants to leave, but potentially he could succeed in a home, but... um, I wonder about some of these dogs that are more... Because I think you shared a video of a dog that had zero affiliative interest in you. Do you remember the video that I'm talking about? Yes, yes. You know, would bringing that dog into suburbia... Can you even make a good argument for that being a good thing for him? Um, And if you want to tell a little bit more of that story, that would probably help our listeners out who aren't friends with you on Facebook. Yeah, so yeah, there's there's actually quite a few dogs like that that just are not interested in humans at all. So you know, I would I I was always careful. I was never like overtly trying to um, you know go up to pet dogs or even I was just I would sometimes have food with me or or see if they were socially interested, but I would never try to actually engage with the dog if I didn't want to. So I'd kind of just hang out. Um, And there's this one dog that was just kind of laying down and just watching me go by and I, I was I was filming it 
filming him and he's just watching me and he's kind of just like the the eyes are just going the only thing moving are his eyes watching me go back and forth and it was kind of like a little bit of a, <laughs> a little bit of a tense moment so i was like okay i'll leave you alone yeah. and uh but that's you know a perfect example of dog that probably is you know really happy just on his own you know doing what he's doing down there and kind of to as as we were talking i was like thinking like you know one of the um most common reasons for for um you know, euthanasia is in owner surrender, surrendering to shelters is behavior. And so how does that impact things too, when we take these dogs and bring them over here and their behavior quickly disintegrates or, or deteriorates, right? And uh, how much that's going to affect overall. So is that dog better off, say, trying to survive after post-hurricane, right? As you had mentioned, or what are the chances of him succeeding here if the behavior uh, diminishes and how much resources are we putting into that too as far as all of the transport costs and the behavior costs the vet the bills and all of those things versus what if we had some sort of setup there to support the animals that are there you know really interesting i, I don't have an answer for any of it of course but yeah maybe just things things to think about that come to mind as we're talking about this yeah i think that's a it's a really good point and i think it's it's so easy um to kind of say like, oh, I've rescued a, a Mexican street dog or something. And that just sounds like such a unilaterally good thing. Um, and I think I, that's one of the things that I really appreciate about what you've been doing on Facebook and kind of why I wanted to have you on is talking about, you know, is it actually that cut and dry um, that getting a dog into a suburban home where he has a fenced backyard that he gets to go spend 20 minutes in three times a day. And then he goes on two 20 minute leashed walks twice a day. And then otherwise he's either, you know, in a crate or sitting alone in a house, maybe with a puzzle toy or a furbo or something. Um, Yeah. Isn't it interesting? So I could, I could post up two pictures of the same dog, right? So I could, I could, I should do this as a social experiment. Like I've say like a dog that's super happy, looks to be in pretty good shape, maybe slightly overweight, but, and I could preface it. Well, well, look at this dog here and he's happy. And then I could, and I would get all kinds of likes and thumbs ups and hearts and all of that. And then I could post the same exact picture and just say, here's this street dog from Mexico. And I would get all kinds of frowny face emoticons <laughs> and all kinds of like people feeling sad and bring it home. And, you know, where it's the same dog and this dog is super happy where he is yeah. health, healthy and kind of fat because he's eating so well. Um, and, you know, so it's just it's interesting. It is. Like, that's a, and that's a good point, too. To I actually had yeah. I was kind of shocked when I got to Mexico and saw how many of the street dogs we're fat. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. oh, you're you're doing okay here, buddy. Yeah, <laughs> At least yeah. food wise. I don't know if they're not starving. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if you've got diabetes, yeah. but you. <laughs> yeah. You're, yeah, you're their not health is starving. definitely. Yeah, the health is not as good. Of course, they don't get the same veterinary care or anything like yeah. that. But yeah, and I so. think in particular in Mexico, and then I actually spent a couple weeks in India this past December. Um, I saw a lot, a lot of street dogs in those two countries that um, looked like they might have been hit by a car at some point. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. A lot of, you know, kind of knuckled under paws or like they're bunny hopping on a back leg or something. And sometimes it was even kind of visibly mangled. Um But it was kind of amazing to see. I mean, these were clearly old injuries and these dogs were still doing relatively well sometimes they weren't quite doing as well as you know the dogs with four functioning legs um yeah but it was like oh okay i mean they're if they can get by on three legs 
um, there, there's something going on in the environment here that it's, it's not as tragic as I think we sometimes want it to be on social media. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And speaking of that, they, they do a pretty good job of avoiding cars. I saw dogs that actually knew how to cross the street based on the signals down there in uh, Santiago and in, in kind of the outskirts there. They would not cross the street unless that light changed or they would follow the people if they crossed the street. They know exactly how to stay safe. Um, now, in, in, in this, the more slow traffic area, sort of like that town of Frutiar, there was, there was two dogs um, were good at avoiding cars just by watching where they're coming. But I, I find that they can't judge the speed. So you would see a lot of dogs that had gotten hit by a car on the highway because the cars are coming so fast. Yeah. So, and Moyer, Moyer was mentioning that too. There's a lot of dogs that do end up um, because they can't. They try to cross the highway and they just can't judge the speed of the cars. But yeah, I think cars cars are definitely a definite health hazard uh, in, in those countries, unfortunately. Yeah. And I would imagine, um, you know, deworming and there's some other like parasite problems are probably pretty rough. Yeah. Um, yeah. That was I mean, I was I was kind of joking with my partner at one point, you know, because we'd been kind of talking about the street dogs and really interested in them as we've been going going driving down. I was like, you know, I almost wish it would be really great if I just got went to a vet and bought a bunch of oral, you know, anti-flea tick um, treats and just yeah. went and handed those out for a little bit because that would probably <laughs> be more useful to these dogs than just about anything else I could do for yeah. them. Um, yeah. And I never did it, but um, something that I think I hadn't thought about much because we talk about going down and doing spay-neuter drives or whatever. Um mm-hmm. Uh, you know, a, a lot in the sheltering world. That's something that we would do. And then I've I've even got a couple of people that I follow on social media that have done stuff like that. And I'm, I'm, that's absolutely valuable. And I'm sure they also do some basic healthcare stuff while they're they're under the knife. But um, for kind of more average Joe, I feel like if I if I wanted to, if someone asked me what could I do to help street dogs, like I'm traveling in Costa Rica and I feel really bad about these dogs, like bring down some some heart guard and some, uh, uh, I mean, if you could get a Soresto collar on them, that would be nice. Cause those last six months, but yeah. Uh, yeah. Something, you know, something yeah. more for parasites. Um, yeah, I agree. So it's the medical care that they're, that's where they're suffering the most. It's not the food. It's not the water. Most of the time it's, it's, you know, it's the medical side of things. Yeah. Um, getting them to take the heart guard might be difficult, though. You can sometimes you can. You, I've brought bread and things like that from the restaurants. They're like, I don't, I don't want that. Yeah. Where's your tuna? So, you know, things, things. A lot of dogs here would take your hand off for. But they're down there. They're just like, I don't want that. And where's the meat? You yeah. Know, the yeah. Stuff? That's true. I've got a dog who um he loves his heart guard, so I kind of forget that that's uh it's not as tempting to many dogs as it is to, yeah. to my chow hound border collie. So before we wrap up, let's kind of circle back because I know your area of expertise is aggression. And that's, um, it's one of the areas that I'm pretty interested in. I'm not as niched down as you are. Um, uh, and when, when we were talking earlier about some of the, the lack of aggression that we were seeing, um, I was thinking that, you know, even if you could make the argument that, well, you're just not really seeing the fights, which is potentially a good argument. Um, I do feel like I heard some squabbles happening at night um, with dogs, and I don't know what was going on, but I would hear some howling and yipping and 
barking and whining. Um, that it, clearly some some discussion was going on. I heard that a couple times. But you would think if that was a big problem and a big occurrence, you would see more injuries like torn ears. I mean, you you do quite a bit of inter dog aggression. So what are the injuries that you would expect to see if you were seeing if if this was happening more with them? Yeah, I would. I mean, so typically the the injuries that are that are on the lower level fights, if you want to kind of lack of a better term, but is uh, uh, injuries around the face, ears, uh, muzzle area, top of head. Um, the more severe fights start, and you start seeing um, bites to the lower areas, in the inguinal region, stomach, groin, lower legs, uh, or rear legs, I should say. So we don't. I, I didn't see many of those injuries, if any, at all, with those dogs. Um, the overt dog-to-dog -dog aggression is so rare, in, in my experience, at least with talking to other trainers and also that that are from there, and also um, just just observing the street dogs. Uh, I will say though, the one of the worst dog fight videos that I use in my seminars, and I should preface that in my safety and defensive handling seminars, I'm not sure like dog fight videos, like how to, it's for showing how to break up a dog fight. Uh, is is was in Brazil. It was, it was shot in Brazil, was, and it's one of the most tenacious uh, dog fights I've ever seen, where the a whole mob of people are trying to break up the. I dog think fight I've seen that. I, it yeah. might have been probably in your seminar, actually. Now that I think about so, it, um, it's such a rare thing, such a rare, rare. Yeah. Kind, so yeah, um, but that's a that's a pretty yeah. disturbing video. Yeah. So pretty scary. Um. Yeah. The dog. It's interesting. You were also mentioning about the dogs uh, in certain hours of like when the twilight hours is. So that's when the dog get more active and that's where you will hear a lot more of that um, kind of noise of some squabbles going on and that's also interesting too the the severe dog fights actually aren't very noisy they're very quiet so you wouldn't even know that they're happening because the dogs are biting and holding and shaking um, you might hear the other dog yelping but real severe dog fights are actually fairly quiet uh, but we did we do hear a lot of those during the once the dogs start getting active right around um, you know six seven eight o'clock whenever the sun is setting in those countries that's where I used to hear a lot more action. <laughs> um, it, it's, oh, it's I'll tell you a funny story when I was down in Mexico it wasn't uh, this year it was last year or it could have been two years ago actually it was I was with Sue Sternberg and we were at a conference and we were staying in like this bed and breakfast the same kind of bed and breakfast and each night right around you know ten eleven it was kind of late we'd hear these dogs fighting and it was kind of in the distance and uh every single night they, they would right around the same time we hear these like the same dog squabbling so uh and sue would be we'd be at breakfast each morning she'd be like did you hear that i'm like yeah i, I heard that and then so it was like the third or fourth night we were there and then i thought i was kind of falling asleep so i was like dreaming i think and i heard i heard the dogs fighting again and then all of a sudden i heard this voice hey like yell really loud <laughs> and then all of a sudden the dog stopped fighting and so the next morning i see sue and she's like oh did you did you hear them again last night i'm like yeah she's i think somebody yelled and i guess they broke up the fight she was like yeah that was me oh. <laughs> like, oh, yeah. i yelled out my window and they stopped fighting so i was like the voice of sue starber came down and broke up the dog <laughs> from <fight."> above <laughs> yeah <laughs> so. wow yeah, that's really funny. Yeah, yeah. I wonder, it's interesting that it was kind of happening every night. I wonder, 
Did she get any look at what was going on? We found out it was actually a mother dog with her puppies, but the puppies were probably not puppies anymore. They oh, were more like a little bit too old to be six months. Yeah, they shouldn't have been together, and they were kind of somebody had dumped them in this this like um, it was like a walled off area, but it was they felt it was safer, so they just kept dumping food in there every day. Someone we learned would come by and dump food in that area for the dogs, gotcha. but um, it wasn't it wasn't a good situation for the dogs there. Yeah, yeah, that does not sound like a good situation at all. We touched a little bit on some of the the benefits of being a street dog from a behavioral standpoint and um, some of the choice and control. And maybe let's let's do some rapid fire ideas for ways that people could try to give their dogs some of that in a safe way. Because um, again, we're not advocating just like leaving your front door unhinged um, and letting your dog go be a street dog. Um, but maybe maybe there's some ways that we can we can add some more choice and control back. So do you have any ideas for that? Yeah, definitely. Um, so over the last maybe ten years or so, ever since, especially with the Dog Whisperer show, a lot of people are focused on this structured walk. You know, walk right next to me. Don't do anything else. We're going to go for a walk or even a run. I mean, I'm not advocating necessarily against those things for sure. Those are much better than sitting in a crate for eight hours a day. Uh, but you know, I think giving the dogs a little bit more time to just explore and explore the environment and get enriched by the environment, smelling things, enjoying life, um, leaving pee mail everywhere. You know, those things are, I think are absolutely acceptable to do. And so even getting a long line and again, done safely, but giving the dog much more uh, ability to to explore the environment, uh, I think is, is important. And that shouldn't, of course, replace good uh, positive interaction with the owner and relationship building with the owner. But I do think the dogs sh- would benefit a lot more from that kind of uh, just freedom to engage in the environment. Yeah, yeah, I would agree. I uh, And even just as a tiny anecdote, um, in the last 48 hours, I flew from Panama to the U.S. and I, I flew with my dog, Barley, um, in the cabin. So he had probably almost 30 straight hours of having to basically be on perfect behavior. You know, we're walking through an airport and I've got him in a heel and he's tucking in between my feet in the, on the plane and all of that. Um and then we got to my dad's 40-acre farm here in Wisconsin. And the first thing I did is just like take off his vest, unclip the leash, just be like, just go. <laughs> and it was, uh, you know, he's he's a good boy. We've got a great relationship. I was feeding him for all of his good behavior through the airport. But I think it was a really good kind of reminder of how important it is to let them, whenever you can, just go and be a dog. I think we, we call them the sniffaris when you just take them out. And <laughs> if, you've, if you're in a yeah. safe area and your dog's trustworthy and it's legal, um, maybe off leash. And if not, um, long lines. I'm even, dare I say it, a little bit of an advocate of hiking with a flexi lead. If um, you don't want to manage a long line, I think hiking <laughs> is one of those times that as long as you're not um, going to get your finger chopped off by the by the cord, um, a flexi lead is a great option. Um, just and letting your dog sniff, leaving the pee mail, stepping in the mud. <laughs> um, I don't I don't think our dogs get enough choice of just what to do every day. Um, and some of the other things that I recommend to my clients for stress reducing things, um, which isn't quite as much choice and control, but is a little bit of problem solving and filling the day would be, um, you know, just puzzle toys. Um, giving your dog something to do. Um, if you can avoid crating your dog, even if that means you're putting them in an exercise pen or baby gated into the kitchen or something, just a way to give them a little bit more space. Um, cause I understand that some dogs aren't trustworthy or whatever. Um, 
but figuring out how to give them more space and just more stuff to do throughout the day is it's amazing how far that can go. Yeah, absolutely. It's just providing a variety of activities even to choose from is, you know, still allowing them a little bit more choice um, towards what they want to do. So, you know, some you, you see it, I'm sure people say, oh, yeah, well, I've got that Kong toy. And that's like the one toy yeah. <laughs> that the dog has in the basket, maybe like a couple stuffed animals. But um, I think really ex- exploring other enrichment ideas can be very helpful, too. Right. Yeah, and I think I've had a couple of clients as well who haven't realized that they need to stuff the Kong toy. Um, (laughs) They've, like, heard all this magical stuff about the Kong, but no one has ever told them that you're supposed to put food in it. Um, And that's what makes it so great for most dogs. Um, It's the ones that are always like, yeah, I got the Kong toy. He's just not that interested in it, though. (laughs) Yeah, and you're like, oh, well, what do you have inside of it? They're like, what? (laughs) Um, Yeah, yeah. So people, if you have a Kong and you you don't know, um, the, the real magic about them is you you put things like peanut butter, mashed banana, wet dog food, whatever. Um, you can freeze it, and then you give it to your dog as like a popsicle, and that's uh, that's the real reason that people are kind of Kong crazy. I mean, some do- my dog will chase and pounce on his Kong all day, but he'll also chase pieces of paper. So, um, <laughs> you know, <laughs> uh, if you've got a dog like that, then you've got it a little bit easier for entertainment. Yeah, border collie. Yeah, yeah, he's yeah, he's a border collie. That's for sure. Uh, any other suggestions as far as freedom, choice, control, behavioral I think wellness in training context too? Yeah, yeah. I think I think you know giving the dog more ability to uh, problem solve, but also uh, catching the right behaviors without cueing them necessarily all the time, um, or expecting you know kind of rethinking a lot of things like getting the. Does the dog really need to sit in that particular context, for instance? Uh, you know, somebody, the dog that jumps up on people, training a sit is great. That's like the old way of always incompatible behavior, right? But does it really need to happen there? Can the dog sit or can they be on all four paws? Yeah. I'll take either, I think... I'll take either one. Give the dog a choice and I'll reinforce either one. That's fine. Or, you know, any other behavior really that I like is other than jumping up, I'll take it and I'll mm-hmm. reinforce that. So it provides a little bit more um, choice in that matter. Yeah, I was just um, reading a Facebook discussion, I think, from uh, the Glasgow dog trainer, uh, John, uh, John yeah, McGowan, John. Yeah. about um, about that particular thing. And uh, Hannah Brannigan commented that one of the things she teaches is she'll teach the dog to shoulder target. Um, oh, yeah. yeah. Which is just so brilliant. Cause it, you, and the point she made is when, you, when you're greeting a dog who's really lovely, one of the things that they often do is they'll kind of rub their shoulder into your hand and then like rub down their body. And that's just such a lovely greeting behavior. And the point that she and John were making is that that's a more natural greeting behavior. And one of the things that can be really great when you're looking at training an incompatible behavior is not just, okay, let's train him to do something that he can't do the unwanted behavior at the same time as. I mean, that's that's the bare minimum. That's the definition of an incompatible behavior. But can we train the dog to do something that also works for the dog? And is an incompatible behavior that if we ask the dog... <laughs> what would you be up for doing instead of jumping would be maybe one of his first responses. Yes. Yeah. Um, Which we can do just by, you know, rewarding offered behaviors that we like better than what we don't like. Um, Yeah. Well, yeah, we can capture, we can capture what we like. Yeah. If we're we're good with our timing and our reinforcers, then yeah. uh, You know, there's a lot of other behaviors other than sit. Yes. Yeah. And I think sit (laughs) in some ways is overused. It's interesting because I've been 
reading a lot about puppy culture lately and about manding, and I'm very sold on it for puppy culture and puppy raising. And then at the same time, I've been reading some of this other stuff about teaching alternative behaviors that are more um, biologically appropriate or behaviorally appropriate, and SID is not really one of them. Um, but I think I think puppy culture advocates would argue that manding is a little bit different from training an incompatible behavior. It's teaching them to sit in order to ask for something. It's teaching them that sit can be a useful thing, not teaching them that in this situation you have to sit. Which might be splitting hairs if you're not kind of in this world, but I think makes sense to me. Does that make sense to you? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it does. Yeah. It does. Yeah. And I've noticed, I mean, my own border collie, I don't know if he was raised with puppy culture or what. I kind of doubt it because from what I know, he was picked up at a, a Walmart parking lot. Um, <laughs> but uh, he he does a lot of, he'll just kind of, when he wants something, wander over and sit and look at me. Um, and he doesn't really sit when I force, you know, I mean, if I ask him to sit, he will, but it's, it's not that I make him sit to get stuff, but it's a really nice way for him to ask me what he wants instead of, uh, barking. Yeah. No, so. I love it. Dogs can cue us all the time. Right? Oh yeah. I, I, I fully appreciate it. So I'm, we're not, we're not, uh, I think the point here is we're not, uh, we're not angry about dogs that sit, but if you're, if you're <laughs> thinking about something, maybe, uh, yeah. You know, maybe maybe something that your dog would also appreciate as an incompatible behavior is smart. And we'll I'll link to a couple resources in the show notes. We've already talked on this podcast quite a bit about Smart Times 50. Um, and especially how Smart Times 50 kind of differs from nothing in life is free. Um, and some some ways to maybe use Smart Times 50 instead of it. Um, and then I'll also link some Kong stuffing recipes and a couple other useful things. Um, on that note, Mike, do you have anything else to add before we before we head out? Uh, I think that's good. I love uh, this podcast was really good. I was. I'm glad we got to talk about street dogs. Um, I have You know, I got to. I think it's it's good to to uh, kind of showcase some of the the things that they go through and some of the things that they don't go through that we might perceive uh, otherwise. So yeah, and I think one of the things, if it's okay with you, one of the things that would be cool to include in the show notes actually would be maybe a couple um, videos if you've got any. Of your street dogs, um, yeah, yeah, that would be pretty I, yeah, cool. Absolutely, yeah, um, especially any of the ones that we talked about, because um, I know I've seen a couple of the ones that we discussed today, um, and I'll see if I've got any as well um, that I can share, because I think we've seen kind of both ends of the spectrum. Um, great. So, where can people find you, um, and you know, plug any anything you want to promote? Just you know, sell yourself <laughs> away. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, if they want, actually, if they want to see the street dogs, I've got a bunch on my Instagram account. Uh, it's at my at Michael Shikashio on, on Instagram and then uh, my Facebook page too. It's, it's just my name. It's my it's my personal Facebook page, but um, I've got the aggressive dog Facebook page as well. Uh, if people are wanting to interest uh, have interest in the aggression stuff, and that's aggressive uh, dog. Uh, yeah, it's at aggression in dogs. If they're looking for the actual page, okay, great. That's, I guess that's how you search something up on Facebook, right? <laughs> great. And then do you want to, we'll, we'll do a quick teaser about this conference thing that we're going to talk about in a couple months. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. October 2nd to 4th, 2020, save the dates. Uh, that's going to be right now. I've got Denise Fenzi, Leslie McDevitt, uh, Katina Jones, Kim Brophy, Jim Crosby, um, and a few others in the lineup, Dr. Amy Pike. And so it's going to be a good conference, all yeah. about aggression, just aggression. So that's going to be amazing. Um, super looking forward to that. And that's in um, and Rhode Island, correct? 
That's going to be Providence, Providence, Rhode Island. Yep. In 2020, not this year. So it's a lot of people are thinking it's October this year, but you have a whole another year after that to plan. Great. <laughs> to, yeah. to come out. Yeah. Yeah. I'm um, hoping I can make it. Yeah. And then um, are you running your aggression A to Z course anytime? I So um, I think this podcast will air in July or August. So so that'll be done. I'm actually running the last two rounds right now. That's the last of it. I'm um, in the what's in the works is a, a uh, very comprehensive course for aggression. Ooh. In dogs, so okay, uh, be, should be should be launching that in around June, July ish. So yeah, people will yeah. have to stay, stay tuned. Stay tuned. Yeah, yeah. Yep. I, uh, I I I took your regression A to Z course. I think two years ago now, and it was really helpful. Yeah. So I'm excited to hear that there's something even even bigger and better coming. Maybe. Yeah, yeah. So much more comprehensive and longer, and yeah. It's yeah. Gonna be, oh, that's going to yeah. be fantastic. All right. Well, um, if uh, if that's live by the time this is live, I will make sure to link it appropriately. Awesome. And as a reminder for all of our listeners, I'm Kayla Fratt. You can find me at journeydogtraining.com. And by the time this airs, I believe I will be living in Missoula, but I will still be doing all of my remote dog training. You guys can check me out for both remote training as well as some, some ebooks, some other useful stuff. We are Canine Conversations. You can find show notes and more information about us at canineconvos.com. That is canine, which is all spelled out. And our theme music is Funny Song. It comes from bensound.com. Our audio is mixed and edited by James Eady at beheard.org.uk. And our logo is from Walker Hooper. You can find his work on Instagram at walkers underscore username. Be sure to give us a rating and review and share us with any of your dog crazy friends. Uh, We'd love to hear from you guys. Bye.